Welcome back to another Ag Watchers podcast, listeners. Um, this week we've got another special guest, John Francis from Agrista, um, and you've got myself and Andrew Whitelaw, of course, just to uh, guide you through the process here. Um, so uh, welcome, John. Um, I'm just going to give a quick rundown. So John, for those that don't know him, was um, a part of the Holmes and Sackett team. Uh, now recently um, kind of gone different directions, and John is with uh, a new group at Agrista, um, John, did you want to give us a quick rundown as to what um, you're doing there at Agrista these days? Yeah, sure. I guess uh, I do everything that I did with Home Sackett, which is largely uh, farm business consulting, but trying to um, take an evidence-based approach to the advice that we give. And it's really the incorporation of the production data with the financial data to give um, sort of solid recommendations. So, so John... That's that's only happened in the last six months or so, hasn't it? Yeah, the change has. Yeah, so it's been pretty um, pretty busy for me. I've got to say, I found a few more hours in the day, um, and uh, you know, there's new challenges and new things to learn. So it's been uh, a pretty steep learning curve, but I've really enjoyed it so far. I've got a bit to go though. There's a bit of a similar story to us to an extent, in that in the last six months, you've. Uh, you're doing the same, but doing it differently. And that's similar to what we've done. We've sort of uh, moved on and, and doing the same as what we've always been doing, but just doing it slightly differently and, and taking an independent and evidence-based approach to it. So that's, that's cool. Excellent. So John, um, we're gonna, you and I had a bit of a chat via email a week or so ago, and it was starting to get quite interesting. I thought it was worthy of a bit of a quick podcast. And it's all around this kind of beef space and um, carbon and the concerns around how beef um, enterprise is going to fit in in a new kind of you know, sustainable environmentally friendly world um, and so um, what I was what I was going to kind of cover off on was you know in that in that kind of series of emails we we're chatting about um, the first of all was a concern you had I guess um, with the growth of this fake meat or, or whatever you want to call that kind of product that's made uh, plant-based meat um, was there a big risk factor in uh, down the track in, in kind of um, impacting you know beef and beef systems as as that becomes more popular? I think the analogy you put forward, John, was the the scenario that happened with the taxis and, and the Uber scenario, where the new new entrant came in and and, and massively disrupted uh, that taxi sector. And are we going to see a similar risk in the beef space? Um, you know, given that um, some of the literature around uh, the fake meat is that it's more environmentally friendly or that's that's definitely that's disputable but um yeah did you want to just give us a rundown of what your concerns were there in terms of um that particular email yeah so i guess where i was coming from was i i had a client who's reasonably um heavily invested in beef already so the majority of their asset base is um is beef assets and they had an opportunity to invest in another um, it would the the proportion of assets would have been another sort of um, fifteen or twenty percent of the total value of assets under management, and and their concern was that they were getting very heavily invested in a product where they felt that they were exposed to the next Uber or Airbnb and that sort of thing, and so I guess that's why I ran to you for um, some data and some um, sort of knowledge around whether that it does actually represent a risk or 
uh, whether there's he's he's sweating unnecessarily about something that really doesn't expose him to that much risk. I mean, there may there's a whole range of risks, um, but I guess where I was looking for is is there any validity to that risk? So I was interested in your response, and maybe you should tell us about that. Yeah, well, that's the thing. I mean, Andrew and I, um, in a previous uh, kind of uh, life, we, we did a, some sampling of that fake meat product. Um, and, you know, the burger product was a Beyond Burger, Andrew, um, that we, we, we sampled. And our, our view was, while the product was a good product, I, I just can't see it um, taking the place of, of, of the meat industry. Um, certainly on the lower end, you know, as, as this particular product becomes more cost effective, I think it could probably compete you know, in, on well, the mass kind of low, low value look, stuff. But. I think, I think what we said, Matt was, and from my memory of the burger at the time, which I've tried to, I've tried to remove that memory, but it's, uh, it really is a case of the burger wasn't bad, but it wasn't a premium burger and you were paying a premium price for it. But when you look at the ingredients of it, they're not expensive ingredients. So you could quite feasibly, uh, get down to those you know two and three dollar burgers which are a large part of the us's you know burger supply chain and a big part of our our 90 cl so feasibly in the future i do think it's a major risk uh, if they can get the cost structure down to a point where it's well if it's indistinguishable from from real meat and it's cheap well why wouldn't you yeah i guess my my, my aspect was andrew that it's always going to be a a, a grinding type. I can't see that product being, no. you know, proper proper steak or, or competing with the, the 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 proper cuts and the various cuts you can get of the animal. Um, it, it's just going to be a, a low value type um, product that goes into, you know, a ready meal stop scenario or some form of a, you know, anywhere you'd use mince basically is where you'd use that product. I think. Um, and so, and and the other aspect, I guess, John, which is what I outlined to you was, um, the what we're seeing in some of the Western countries, I guess, where there's this kind of reduction in the consumption of both red meat and other meat types. Um, and, and people are pointing that and saying, Oh, it's, it's those that want to be more, you know, sustainable and responsible environmentally or health reasons or whatever. Um, you are seeing some bit of a trend of, of reduced meat consumption in some of those Western countries. But if you look to the, the growth potential for the future, it's broadly within the developing world where we're going to see the huge amounts of growth for all types of meat proteins. And that's going to be a, a, a decade or two decade type scenario, if not longer. And I, I don't think um, that particular product is going to be the type of product, certainly on the cost basis on now, is going to be something that's going to appeal um, to those developing countries. I think they're still very much firmly entrenched in as you get wealthier, you consume um, meat protein and it's the traditional proper meat protein not some something grown in a lab is, is was my view yeah so i guess um you've probably just answered my question because the real the real issue for this client was um what is the lead time if we are likely to see a change um and uh, and and i guess in this case i felt that if it was a five-year time frame, the value of the assets was reasonable or that he could have exited in within a five-year time frame and still probably generated a reasonable rate of return. But if if you felt that 
um, and there was a compelling case that over the short term we're likely to experience this rapid transition, which is I think what happened with Uber or maybe I was just asleep at the wheel, I don't know, but um, thankfully I wasn't invested in, um, in uh, taxi um, taxi uh, licences. But, um, you know, that, that was really my concern that it, that it may sort of take off very quickly. But I think really what you're telling me on the basis of what you've just discussed is that's highly implausible. Yeah, I think so. Um, I think the cost structure of this particular product, like Andrew was saying, it's still... It's still a price as a premium product, but it's not. It's the actual eating quality and what you can do with it compared to all the cuts you can get off an animal, is not. It's not a premium product, and I don't think it will be. Um, I think what what we've seen in the initial stage and the demand for it was really a curiosity. Um, guys like us, I guess, that are meat eaters that went and tried the product to see. And look, not to denigrate it too much, I was quite surprised actually that it was. It was for what it was. It was a good product but it's not something I would go out and pay that money for. Indeed, I probably wouldn't even pay less for it because, um, you know, at the end of the day, I'd, I'd prefer to eat the real thing. Um, but, but I can concede, like Andrew's saying, that, that once they can get the cost structure down, which I think, I mean, you know, I'm not an expert in that whole field, but I, I would imagine it's going to be, you know, many years before they can get the cost structure down to be able to really compete properly in that low-value kind of mint space. I think, I think the other thing that... It's probably delayed that rise in uh, in, in fake meat. Is, is this coronavirus um, sort of um, the economic impact of coronavirus? In that, I think that people are going to be as much as we're talking about like a V-shaped recovery and, and whatnot. I do think that people are going to be a little bit more conservative when it comes to their spending. You know, and I, like anecdotally, I went to out into Geelong on Saturday morning uh, to do the, the last bit of first and last bit of Christmas shopping. And uh, I was expecting it to be, um, you know, bedlam, like as it is the, the last Saturday before Christmas. And it was dead. Like there was no customers and I might as well have been shopping at six o'clock in the morning. But, and I think if I looked at the eateries and, and the restaurants, they were all similarly sort of quite quiet. So people aren't spending as much money on, on retail and at the moment outdoor food. And look, we're back to relative normal apart from Sydney, uh, but look at the UK, look at the US, all of Europe, you know, that's another period of time where people are going to be more conservative about money. And I think paying a premium for, for fake meat is going to be the least of people's priorities at the moment. Well, that's the thing too. Um, through that whole um, COVID process, we saw this product left on the shelf, right? The um, the fake meat product, even after all the meat was cleaned out of all types, both uh, the lower lower value kind of minced meats and the sausages, and then up to the high end meats were all cleaned out of the shelves, and, and still um, the fake meat product was left on the shelf. I think the other aspect too, and I alluded to it before, was um, that the the product itself isn't as environmentally friendly as what it's made out to be. You know, it doesn't have um, the credentials. And certainly if you start to look at something like um, regenerative agriculture, uh, you know, that, that there's claims around that, that it's um, a much more, uh, a much more um, environmentally friendly product. Now that's, I guess, disputable as well. Um, John, you were going to say something? 
Oh, well, I was really just wondering the extent to which your own biases may be um, reflecting your views on on the um, alternative meat products. I'm I'm fascinated by the social psychology at the moment, and I've just finished an article looking at, at biases. Um, and up until sort of a couple of months ago, I didn't even realise I had them. Um, which is just shows how ignorant I was and why um, this whole social psychology bit is groundbreaking for me. Um, a, because it, it, it shows me um, a little about myself, but it also shows me or um, provides me confidence that I um, am not as bad at changing people's opinions as I think. It's actually their own minds and beliefs and so on that they hold that prevents us um, us as evidence providers from actually um, achieving change. So I've got two biases really, and and the, so they're also relatively competing biases. In that you know, Matt and I are, are, are effectively meat producers as our side gig, I guess you could say, and we're also working in this industry. So we got an inherent bias towards towards benefiting the meat industry. That's that's a given, but I think we, we did look at it from a fairly open-minded, and we were both relatively open-minded people. My second bias is that I'm a tight arse, and as, as a Scotsman, I'm looking at things like the meat and thinking, well, geez, if I can get a, a really tasty burger and it's indistinguishable from, from meat and it's 20% of the price of the real thing, then yeah, maybe I will. So I'm, I'm sort of... From from both ends, I guess I'm, I'm relatively, uh, I reckon that's unbiased look at it. I'll buy it if it's cheap enough, yeah, you, which I think is a conflict. I think you've I'll, got some conflicting biases there then. Well, if you've got two biases, it becomes even. <laughs> what about the bias of being a, a grains analyst, Andrew? A lot of the, the products that go into uh, grains and other, other kind of um, broad acre crops and pulses they all go into these fake meat products um, oh, absolutely like these are like a good product for for the pulse industry and and, and i think in in time like if you look at it from a long term point of view like an ultra long term like 50 60 years then populations are going to boom and so these sort of products are probably going to be needed you know if if the population continues to become more affluent like if we have, you know, a world where everybody is hopefully close in terms of wealth around the whole world, then meat won't cut it regardless of what anyone thinks. And it will become a premium product. Mm. But anyway. Yeah, that's my... no, that's right. Well, that's a fair point. I guess we could go on. This is probably not the podcast to argue about the environmental credentials of the beef industry and the, uh, and the fake meat industry, and uh, that would that would be a, a two-hour long podcast. But um, the other point you made, John, in our email discussion was just around um, the uh, what you've been seeing on the ground with regards to, particularly for beef enterprise, I think it was, and the ability to um, reduce their carbon footprint. I guess I know there's a big push from MLA uh, to move to a carbon neutral by 2030 is the is, is the target, um, and you've been doing some work. I believe on 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 farm type scenario of looking and seeing how, particularly in the southern kind of systems, um, how well they're coming along at at, at reducing uh, carbon footprint. I guess. Um, did you want to give us a bit of a rundown on what you were seeing there? Because that was quite interesting. Yeah, I, I guess um, it was less so about 
what they're um, how they're reducing it than what their actual base level is and so the beauty of benchmarking data um, is that you can take a known set of production and financial data and sort of use the tools that are available to run the carbon analyses and the interesting thing for me was that um, some of the more profitable and productive beef producing farms are, uh, are net higher carbon emitters they are more carbon intensive meaning for every kilogram of live weight they put out um, they put out a lower amount of carbon emissions but they are still net emitters now what the tool doesn't take into account is soil carbon and apparently the tree bit isn't that great but I'm struggling to see in a southern system for the more productive producers how without something like asparagopsis um, they might actually reduce their footprint or their carbon emissions because effectively they've already taken the low-hanging fruit they've already improved their soils they've you know they're growing more feed their carbon levels in the soil are reasonable um, or high and so I'm struggling to see in these southern systems where the more productive producers might actually achieve lower carbon emissions. Mm. That's an interesting, an interesting point you make, John, about how some producers are effectively, they're already doing the right thing, so to speak, and they've already picked all of those easy to, easy to meet targets and whatnot. And I had a discussion with 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 a farmer the other day, uh, Oscar Pierce, about carbon farming and environmental biodiversity farming and and whatnot, and about the element of additionality. So if you're going for a carbon farming thing, people who have done nothing for the last twenty or thirty years, they can add more and get paid for it. But people who have been doing stuff for the past twenty years can't add anything more. So they can't, any of these potential schemes which will come out may actually be of a detriment to farmers because they, who have done well or, 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 or planted trees or, or whatever it may be because they have nothing else that they can really add in a substantial way. But if you've, if you've cleared you know, a big tract of land in Queensland or northern New South Wales and you plant a whole raft of trees, well, you've just added a whole big carbon sink, which... You know, somebody down south might not necessarily be able to do it, which is in your example. So I think that's that's an important one to think about is this additionality when we're thinking about, you know, whether people should do something now or whether they should wait until there are schemes in place where you can actually, you know, financially benefit from it. Yeah, that's right. And I, th I think um, those people, some people out there that are claiming um, carbon neutrality are actually doing it by acquiring assets or growing their business with businesses that are um, that have that ability to add carbon through either improved soils or tree plantings or those sorts of things. So when you look at the whole picture, it's really important that you understand how they're achieving carbon neutrality because it may not be a, an achievable goal um, for you if you've already taken all the low hanging fruit. 
Now, that doesn't mean at an industry level there's not some opportunity and I think um, that's probably where MLA are coming from. You know, there's opportunity perhaps in Northern Australia and I've got nothing to do with Northern Australian systems so I can't really speak um, about that. But I was just interested to see that there isn't a whole lot of opportunity that I could see um, from those better producers. Now, as you say... The worse you are, the better you are off in terms of adding carbon and those sorts of things. But um, we'll see whether the whether the pricing signals are appropriate for them to pursue it because they haven't been in the past. The, the production pricing signals haven't been good enough, so I can't see the carbon pricing signals getting them over the line. Mm. It's a good point. I, I, when you were talking about that, both yourself and Andrew, about... Um, farmers that haven't been doing as much I guess in that carbon space and I, I recently saw that sacred cow documentary that's produced out of the US and it's all around pushing the idea of regenerative farming which you know on the surface I know it's getting some traction but there are some out there that are still questioning that whole process and um, the curious thing as you guys were saying I was remembering that some of the farmers they were showing on this um, were farmers that I guess for want of a better word had kind of had thrashed their land a little bit and now that will turn into regenerative ag and obviously they're getting some big improvements um, in, in going down that pathway. And I'm just wondering, is it is the big improvements regenerative ag focused or is it the big improvements they were seeing just because um, they'd thrashed their land so much they had a lot of a lot of way they could make up, you know, and, I, I, and that was I, part of the story. I do these people, like these farmers, and this is not a slight before I get any tweets or whatever, but do they become a bit like the... Uh, the person who quits smoking or the person who you know stops drinking or finds religion they become bigger advocates for for the thing than than anyone else you know the the, the born again regenerative farmer maybe that's a a new term <laughs> but anyway so does that mean john that, that as an industry you mentioned before the um the seaweed solution, I guess, is, is one of the things. What's it called? It's asparagosis or something is the name of the, the, the particular variety that you'd mentioned there. I might have mispronounced that. But um, is that is that basically where the red meat sector or the, the, the cattle sector is hanging their hopes on on getting um, emissions down by this new additive? Is that is that where you think is going to be heading? Or or are we um, just got to and we just got to, as an industry, accept that um, it's going to be a hard struggle to um, to become carbon neutral by uh by 2030 or 2040? Yeah, the problem with me answering that is, again, I don't know the proportions of carbon um, neutrality or the expectations by distribution. So meaning Northern Australia, if their emissions are huge and they've got huge capacity to um, to reduce emissions through, you know, soil means or um, or tree reversion or whatever it is, then... Um, there may be no need for it, but those more profitable and productive producers in the south, yes, I hold hope that that seaweed is a solution. Um, the flip side is you could look at it and say, well, it only represents X proportion of my profits and therefore even if the government is likely to legislate that I need to pay to be carbon neutral, um, that may be the best outcome for them without knowing the pricing structure of um, these alternatives. It could be that payment if, of their emissions is the best way to go. 
and I'm only looking at this strictly from a financial perspective, um, not necessarily from an environmental perspective. And clearly from an environmental perspective, what the aim is, is to reduce carbon emissions. But you, but the reality is that you can only do that to a point in some of these businesses. Mm, yeah. I wonder if, um, I mean, my, my kind of longer term take is that um, that kind of grass-fed, if you want to call it regenerative style approach, is um, something I think that's not going to get the type of uh, efficiencies in terms of um, you know what, what you can produce, I guess, in, in terms of meat product coming out of that system compared to a feedlot type system. I think there's high efficiencies in a feedlot, but obviously it has. There are more concerns around um, how feedlots are going to fit in to that whole carbon um, environment, or, or you know, reduced carbon or no carbon environment of the future, um, and. So my view is that you might have a, a tiered system, I guess, where for those that have the capacity to pay for um, and, and have the desire to pay much, much more for, for, for I guess, a green product um, and, and it's produced on a, on a, like you almost got a very high kind of um, niche where grass-fed and regenerative becomes the, the kind of benchmark for the really premium product. And then you've got the next tier down, I guess, which tends to then go towards more feed in the masses. And if it's a meat product, it comes out of a feedlot. Um, and, and you've just got to have to work around whether it's seaweed solution or other, other options to get the feedlot production down, uh, you know, as in, sorry, the feedlot carbon emissions down as much as possible through technologies. But, but the feedlots are going to be what feeds the masses, really, if it's real meat. And then you've got the next tier down again will be the, the fake meats and the plant-based stuff. Once they get cost competitive, that they're obviously the, the lower of all of the types of products um, that can be a meat substitute. And, and that's kind of you know, largely grain pulse based stuff that, that feeds the masses. But again, um, from an environmental perspective, I don't think that sector has any real environmental credentials when you look at um, the way that products produce the amount of stuff that goes into it. And, and if you, if you go down that regenerative discussion where they talk about it being a monoculture um, that's certainly not going to be, I, I can't see that being an industry that's low carbon emitters, you know, low water users. Um, so, you know, from an environmental perspective, I think it's just, you know, it's not going to have any credentials there either. I don't know, Andrew, what, what, what do you think about that as a statement? Yeah, I don't have a huge amount really to add to that one, Matt. Matt. <laughs> <laughs> so that means you agree with me. <laughs> Let's 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 table that one. <laughs> All right then, fair enough, John. Um, look, I think what's important here is defining some of the things we're talking about because um, my understanding of regenerative systems is that there's a big sort of um, there's a big divergence in the view of what is regenerative. And so, and, and my personal view is a lot of the principles that we talk about in regenerative or that are being talked about in regenerative ag are actually being practiced in what I would call conventional agriculture. And so things like, you know, the, the, the reason that's important is because there's a perception that the only way to build your carbon uh, in the soil is through regenerative agriculture. Um, the reality is there's plenty of conventional systems that have high so soil carbon levels through 
whatever means they've invested in so far. And a lot of that may be soil fertility, building, you know, maybe perennial pastures, um, grazing systems that suit the environment, all those sorts of things. And I think this exclusivity uh, that you can only build soil carbon through regenerative systems can be divisive. And I think there's got to be more inclusivity. And so my approach is, well, take the regenerative principles, which are build soil carbon, and apply them to your conventional system um, and try not to take the the extremist view one way or the other. Mm. No, that's probably a fairly a, a balanced approach and probably a, a sensible one, I think. Um, I'd, I'd, hey. I'd sort of like to sort of with this regenerative agriculture, my sort of biggest qualm with it is that how many people can actually afford to, to do this form of, let's call it the landline or the 7pm show Aussie story version of regenerative agriculture because that's the only one we see which is you know leaving everything and then just seeing what happens uh, but look there's a lot of there's a lot of farm debt out there and and regenerative agriculture I'm not entirely convinced that it's as productive as 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 people people say I think if we were to say that um you know, we're going we're going to take our farm and we're going to reduce productivity by thirty to forty percent. I don't think the average farmer would be. Well, actually, I don't think it would be the farm farmer who would have the problem. I think the bank manager would be saying, uh, "Look here, mate, that's that's not going to work with your your budget." And I think it's like one of the things that I, I I most noted was that when that program was on. Um, the Australian story or something like that. There was a picture of, uh, of, a, of a, there's this anecdotal evidence, which was a picture of a paddock in 1984. Then there was a picture of the paddock in 2016 during two droughts. The 1984 one looked, oh, it looks all terrible, bare ground, blah, blah, blah. And then the one in 2018 during the drought was a bit of grass. So this is fantastic Look how we've saved it. But then if you look at crop yields, in the same year versus crop yields in New South Wales, it's chalk and cheese. So whilst that regenerative farm, yes, it has more grass and whatnot, the cropping industry as a whole has increased its productivity massively uh, in that same period of time. So I'm not like I'm not convinced. I haven't watched your 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 sacred cow thing or the other documentary that you recommended, Matt, from last year. I can't remember which was one. That that was that the 2040 one? I think it was. was the one it? that you watched on a plane and you became a happy yeah, for a couple was... of days. <laughs> <laughs> that was that 2040 one, I think. Um, the Australian uh, Gamo, I think his name is, Adrian Gamo or something. But, but I, I, would say, I would say that these are documentaries. And I'm, like when I watch a documentary, I want to watch a documentary on ancient Egyptians. Or I want to watch the documentary on space. Because I tend to find that all of these food documentaries tend to be a lot of propaganda. Mm. And, and 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 they are very well done and like the infographics. And if I showed them to my wife, she'd say, Oh, we're that's terrible, blah, blah, blah. But John, you were you were gonna say something there? Well, I th- I think you've just nailed it. I think that's exactly right. It, they appeal to people who perhaps don't have the ability to scrutinise the information um, a, a, as deeply as it should be scrutinised. 
And I, I guess the point I was going to make is there was one US study that actually showed that yields in corn, for example, did decrease by 30%. But what happened was those corn producers, this is from a regenerative perspective, those corn producers, there was nine in the study versus, there's 10 in the study versus 10 non-regenerative, um, with each with four fields or thereabouts. And what it showed was that four of those nine who had financial data actually had far higher prices. And what that did was weight the average of the cohort up. So even though they were 30% less uh, productive and 30% or 37% less cost, they were 78% more profitable. But that 78% was a function of four of nine producers who had five times the average price relative to the non-regenerative cohort, which just had the average price with very little variability around price. So that says to me that there are a minority of producers who may be able to achieve these higher prices required to get the, to offset the lower production. But if you're not one of those people who's really good at pursuing that sort of stuff, um, which might be, you know, bluff and blunder, or it might be um, marketing ability, or it might be who you know, then you're in for a world of pain. And I think this comes back to your point, Andrew, is if, if you're heavily leveraged and your expectation is that you're going to come out the same and you come out a lot worse than the same, then you've gone in eyes wide open, but you're going to come out with a lot of pain. So I guess my bent is on the economics I'm always focused on on the economics because you've got to stay in business to get to the other side and enjoy it, reap the rewards of the systems and those sorts of things. And a system built on price in a commodity business on an expectation that you're going to get high price in a commodity business, I think is, is a concern for me because when I look at the more profitable producers, Typically, they built that profitability on a low cost of production plus plenty of production. And I think a, a system that builds it on price, yes, you can make margins and you can be profitable, but do you do it over the long haul? I don't know. Time will tell, I guess. But I think it's like, I think the other thing to think about as well is that there's like organic is confusing enough as it is because there's a whole bunch of certifications but this regenerative agriculture takes it to another element where let's be honest anyone is a regenerative farmer if they just say that i'm a regenerative farmer like any any farmer who's using no-till which is 99 percent of, of of crop producers in the country is technically a regenerative farmer you could argue to an extent you know they they they're putting carbon back into the soil by leaving leaving uh, residues and whatnot. So and this is where it comes down to these sort of. You're right. It's it's down to a bit of salesmanship, and whether they can actually convince people that it's it's a a valid thing, and and whether you can convince somebody even if you aren't following all of the uh, all of the tenets of the uh, of the uh, Charles Massey or whoever it may be. So I think the uh, the other thing as well is 
I've, I've always thought, and Matt, we've discussed this a lot, especially about the meat industry and, and the grains industry is always going to be at that, is that we have this interest in making sure that people in Sydney and Melbourne are, are happy with our products. But like, who cares? Because they're not our customer anyway, by and large. Yeah. The bulk of it, the bulk, yeah, seventy-five percent goes overseas, right? So, so yeah, so like domestic consumption, you know, some people think it's fifty percent, but it's actually more like twenty-five percent of, of of domestic of of beef is consumed domestically. Uh, so, why do we really care what they say when we've got bigger customers overseas? So, I, I don't think Jimmy in Jakarta really cares about regenerative agriculture, but that, maybe that's just me. Maybe that's another bias, John. Mm. Mm. We're all kind of biased, I guess, from that perspective, though, eh? Yeah. Oh, well. No, so, um, well, I think, look, it's probably, I think we could probably go on for hours and hours discussing the uh, intricacies of it, but um, we've only got a limited time and we've taken up loads of your time, John. So I really appreciate you um, coming onto the podcast and having a chat. I think, Andrew, would you like to do a little bit of a, a wind up as well, uh, just you know, your normal kind of run through. You tend to do a better job of it than me. Uh, yep, yep. So, thank you all for listening. Thanks again, John, for coming on. Uh, if you like this podcast, then share it with your friends and family. This could be the best Christmas present they've ever received because information is the best present and knowledge because knowledge lasts a lifetime, you know. Ag watches is, is not just for Christmas. It's for all year round. Uh, and John is a, you know, he's well known and uh, recommend that you, you follow him on, on Twitter at agrista underscore AU. Uh, he's got a lot of charts, not as many as us, but he's got a lot of charts out there. So he's, he's not a competitor, so we can plug him. Uh, so yeah, thanks very much. And I think this is the last podcast before the new year. And uh, we hope everyone has as good a 2021 as they had in 2020. Oh, no, wait. We're not supposed to say that anymore. We hope everybody has a new year. (laughs) Thanks very much. Thanks, John, for coming on, mate. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. And happy new year. (laughs) Cheers.